Welcome to Redemption's podcast. This is Corey Ball, lead pastor at Redemption Community Church, found in Kirkwood, Missouri, in the greater St. Louis area. Before we dive into the content, I want to invite you to follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook to stay current on all things Redemption. You'll find both of these accounts by searching Redemption STL. But more than anything, we hope that this podcast will help inspire and challenge you to take your next steps in following Jesus. If you have any questions about God, Christianity, or redemption, don't hesitate to reach out. You can DM us on our socials or text us at 314-391-4141. And now, without further ado, here is the content you are looking for. Enjoy. Well, hey everybody, welcome to Redemption. It is so good to be with you this weekend. My name is Casey Jordan, and I, I am just pumped. I was, uh, I was telling Britt this earlier that I'm so excited to get to, like, stand in front of real people <laughs> and, and be with you and talk with you again. Um, and happy almost Christmas. If you uh, have forgotten, Christmas is, like, 10 days away, so that's kind of your, uh, your mark for getting uh, gifts and things like that. Um, if your family is anything like ours, we are in, like, full Christmas swing at the Jordan house a couple of weeks ago, my siblings came over and helped me decorate my home. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm single, I live on my own, and the reality is if they didn't come and help me, it was not, it was not going to happen. And so they came and helped me decorate. My brothers strung lights, and uh, the weekend after that, me and my sisters-in-law and my mom and my two nieces, uh, Annie and Kennedy, uh, we got together and we baked Christmas cookies because we weren't able to have our annual Christmas cookie exchange this year. So we got together and did it ourselves. And uh, I, I just love Christmas. I love everything about the Christmas season. I love the trees. I love the lights. I love the music. Um, I'm a product of the 90s and the early 2000s. So the NSYNC uh, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays Christmas album, forever a favorite of mine. Um, but I also really love the movies. We have this tradition in our family that uh, on Christmas Eve, every single year, since I was probably, gosh, five or six years old, uh, we have gotten together on Christmas Eve. We've put on our pajamas. We've gathered around a roaring fire because my dad is really good at making fires. And uh, we've eaten gingerbread and we've watched The Muppets. We actually watched two Christmas uh, Muppets movies, The Muppet Christmas Carol and The Muppet Family Christmas. Those are our favorites. If we have time, we'll watch Charlie Brown, but we, we don't skip The Muppets. Every year since I was probably five or six years old, and um, now that there are kids in our family again, it's kind of acceptable for us to be watching The Muppets on Christmas Eve, but I'm not going to lie to you, we did it before the kids came, <laughs> like well into adulthood. From the time I was five until the present, we watched The Muppets, and honestly, it is one of my favorite nights of the entire year. Like, I look forward to it the entire year. It's the best. Um, but I like other Christmas movies, too. I, I like some of the classics, you know, It's a Wonderful Life and Miracle on 34th Street. Um, I like some of the more modern ones, uh, Jingle All the Way. Does anyone remember Ar Arnold Schwarzenegger in that one? Oh yeah, great, great Christmas movie from my childhood. Uh, the Santa Claus Elf, Home Alone, and um, of course, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. One of the best Christmas movies. If you have not seen that movie, I was talking to a friend recently who said that she has never seen that movie, and I don't know how you get to adulthood having not seen Christmas Vacation. Just to give you the kind of the story in case you aren't familiar with it, Clark Griswold um, is determined to give his family the most incredible Christmas they've ever experienced. Like, that's all that he wants, is to have the perfect Christmas. So he, he insists that his family go traipsing with him through the snow to find the perfect Christmas tree. He goes out searching for the perfect Christmas presents. He wants to serve up the perfect Christmas dinner, and he wants the perfectly decorated house. 
Now, as you could probably guess, even if you haven't seen the movie, nothing goes according to plan. Like, nothing at all goes right. Problem after problem after problem. It turns out that this perfect Christmas tree they found is far too big to fit in their living room. So they have to kind of chop it down to size to get it in, and then it catches on fire. Um, Clark decorates his house with 25,000 lights only to cause a power outage. His, his parents won't stop bickering with his in-laws, and, and the Christmas bonus that he has been waiting for turns out to be a one-year membership to the Jelly of the Month Club. Nothing goes right for Clark Griswold. Um, he, he wanted the perfect Christmas. He wanted to give that to his family. But here's the thing. Even, even if he'd gotten it, even if he'd had that perfect Christmas, the reality is the day after Christmas, it all would have gone back in the box. The tree would have come down, and, and the ornaments would have, been, would have been packed up. The lights would have come down. They would have been packed away into another jumbled knot to deal with next year. Uh, the, the perfect presence that he had found for his family would be used for a little while, but eventually would find a more permanent home somewhere, you know, high up on a closet shelf. Even if he had gotten that perfect Christmas, at the end, it all would have gone back into the box. Now, don't get me wrong. I love Christmas. <laughs> I love Christmas cookies. I love the decorations. I love the tree. I love all of it. But we've all experienced that, haven't we? we? We've all experienced, you know, the high of excitement and anticipation and then the low of disappointment and disillusionment when it's all over. We've all experienced that. We've all put our hope in things that, that can't and, and don't last. We've all been there. Throughout this Christmas series, we've been looking at uh, the characters of Christmas. Uh, we got to hear about the shepherds, the unlikely first recipients of the good news that Jesus had been born. We heard about the wise men, this, this band of, of pagan astrologers who came to worship the newborn king of the Jews. But here's the thing. Here's where that story gets complicated. Israel already had a king, and his name was Herod the Great. And, and Herod, like so many of us, placed his hope in things that couldn't last. Let me give you just a little bit of context here before we dive into to the actual Christmas story. When Jesus stepped onto the scene, Israel was not a free nation. They were occupied by the Roman Empire, and uh, they were governed by Roman-appointed officials. And, and Herod was one such official. Now, Herod was a really complicated figure in history. Really fascinating guy, actually. Uh, he was a master builder. Master builder. He left fortresses and palaces all over Israel. He rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem, and, and the Jewish sages uh, of the first century said, if, if you haven't seen Herod's temple, you haven't seen beauty. He was a brilliant businessman. Um, he, he earned his fortune in trade and was actually wealthier than the Roman Emperor Augustus. Like, fabulously rich. Um, and he was a, an incredible politician. Um, so Herod was originally allied with a guy named Mark Antony. You guys remember Mark Antony from like sixth grade world history? So he was, he was an ally of Mark Antony, who was a rival to Emperor Caesar Augustus. And so when it became clear that Mark Antony was going to be defeated, uh, Herod scurried off to Rome, and he convinced Emperor Augustus. He said, I will be twice the friend to you that I ever was to Mark Antony. And Augustus believed him and appointed him as king over, over Israel, over Judea. So incredible, incredible politician. Um, but he was also plagued with this deeply rooted paranoia. Herod had a pretty strong base of supporters because he was so good economically that he had people who loved him and benefited from him. But he also had more than his fair share of dissenters, mostly faithful Jews who saw him as an illegitimate king and a, and a puppet of Rome. 
And so as a result, he was deeply paranoid. He was deeply paranoid. Uh, and he eliminated anyone that threatened his throne. Anyone. He killed off advisors when he uh, suspected them of conspiring with his enemies. He killed off two of his sons and one of his wives, actually his favorite wife, when he suspected them of plotting against him. He trusted no one. Everyone was a potential threat to his precious kingdom. That's Herod the Great. So with that kind of that background in mind, understanding a little bit about who he is and kind of how he fits into history, um, I, I want to look at uh, the Bible now and, and how Herod uh, plays in to this Christmas story. So here at Redemption, we start in the same place in our Bibles every single week. We start in the table of contents. So if you have a physical Bible, you can go ahead and turn there now. If you have an app on your phone, you can hop over to the table of contents. We're going to be in the book of Matthew. Um, Matthew is one of the four biographies of Jesus in the New Testament. The New Testament is kind of the last third of your Bible. So uh, it'll be kind of towards the end. So find the book of Matthew. We're going to be in chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Here's what it says. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are not least among the ruling cities of Judah. For a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. So now, given, given what we know about Herod, how do you think he responded when a band of wise men show up searching for the newborn king of the Jews? Well, the text tell us, tells us that he was deeply disturbed. Remember, this is a super paranoid dude we're talking about. Like, he doesn't think twice about killing anyone that could be even a potential threat to his throne. So he, he is deeply disturbed. But here's what I find really interesting. Um, Herod doesn't ask the leading priests and the teachers of religious law where the new king is to be born. Did you catch that? The wise men say, where is the new king supposed to be born? Herod goes to the leading priests and the teachers of religious law, and he says, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? He doesn't ask them the question that the wise men asked. Now, that's really interesting, because long ago, God had promised to send a Messiah. The word Messiah in Hebrew means anointed one. And in, throughout the Bible, someone was anointed when they were being set apart, commissioned uh, for a special purpose, a special mission. And so God had long ago promised to send a Messiah. And, and the mission of this Messiah would be to rescue the people of God. Now, in Herod's day, the Jewish people believed that this Messiah would come, he would overthrow Rome, he would liberate Israel and restore their independence. So, when Herod hears that these wise men are searching for the newborn king of the Jews, he fears the worst. He fears that the Messiah has come. Oh, one more thing. When it comes to the Messiah, part of the promise of God is that this Messiah would come from the Jewish line of a man named David. David was the greatest king in Israel's history. So if the Messiah has come, it means the heir to David's throne has come. It means the rightful king of the Jews has come. This is why so many people understood Herod to be an illegitimate king, because Herod was not Jewish by birth. 
He wasn't Jewish by birth. He wasn't from a Jewish line, much less the line of David. So if the Messiah has come, the rightful king of the Jews has come. So let's keep reading. Matthew 2, 7 and 8. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. Now, again, given what we know about Herod, Herod obviously had no intention of going to worship Jesus, right? We, we know that. He had no intention of going to worship Jesus. The wise men don't know that, but we do. Herod had every intention of killing him. Remember, any potential threat, gone, eliminated, done. That's what Herod has in mind here. Um, but God, in a dream, warns uh, the wise men to go back to their country by another route. Don't report back to Herod. God tells these wise men. And so they, they, they leave. They escape by a different route. In another dream, God comes to Joseph, the adoptive father of Jesus, and says, you need to get out. Take Mary, take his mother, take Jesus, and get out. Go to Egypt, and I'll let you know when it's safe to come back. So the wise men escape by a different route. Mary, Joseph, and Jesus head down to Egypt. So let's keep reading. When Herod found out, Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him, he sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. Herod was livid. It would have been so much easier to kill Jesus if they just would have told him where he was. It would have been so much easier. But now, either Herod has to go search for the child himself, or he can just kill all the two-year-old boys in the vicinity of Bethlehem. And Herod, true to form, chooses the latter. He kills off all, all the baby boys, two years old and under, in, in Bethlehem. Now, we read a passage like that, and, and we're, we're revolted by it, right? Like, that, like that kind of makes us, like, sick to our stomachs. Like, this isn't how it should be. Like, how could you be so selfish? How could you be so brutal? Like, what? How? Like, that, we call it out as sin, and it is sin. But here's the thing. Herod's actions make total sense when we begin to understand that Herod sat on the throne of his own heart. He wasn't just the king of the Jews. He was the king of his own life. There was nothing more important in his world than himself. He found his entire identity in his rule. He cared about nothing more than he cared about his kingdom, building his kingdom. He placed all of his hope in it. But it was a misplaced hope because Herod's kingdom couldn't last. His kingdom couldn't last. It died when he did. At the end, it all went back into the box. Um, I've had the privilege of spending some time in Israel, and um, I was actually there this past uh, January and got to visit a couple of Herod's uh, palaces. And one of the palaces that we visited is called the Herodian. Uh, this is Herod's favorite palace. Um, now, let me just tell you some interesting things about the Herodian. I'm going to be kind of an archaeology nerd for a second here. The Herodian, uh, that's kind of the mountain off to the right, that's a man-made mountain. All right, there was no mountain there, no mountain. Herod built a mountain and then built a palace on top of that mountain. All right, so he has this palace up here. This is, Her the Herodian is Herod's favorite palace, and it is magnificent. Like, it's massive. And uh, just as a little bit of geography, you've got the city of Jerusalem. Just outside Jerusalem is this little town of Bethlehem, which in Jesus' day would have been no more than 150 people, 200 people, small little town. And then just outside that is the Herodian. So the Herodian actually overlooks ancient Bethlehem, 
and, and you can see Jerusalem uh, from the top of the, of the Herodian. You can see the Jerusalem skyline. So here's what's really interesting. A few years ago, archaeologists made an incredible discovery at the Herodian. They found Herod's tomb. Herod was buried at the Herodian. But here's what I find actually more interesting than the tomb itself, is, is where the tomb was found. See, Herod placed his tomb on the side of his man-made mountain in such a way that in death he could overlook his vast kingdom. But today that kingdom is rubble. It's rubble. Jesus didn't leave any palaces. Jesus didn't leave any fortresses. But Jesus left a kingdom. He left a kingdom of people. And today, the people of the kingdom of God stand on the ruins of the kingdom of Herod. Herod's kingdom couldn't last. It died when he did. So whose kingdom are you building? Whose kingdom are you building? Are you building your kingdom? Or are you building God's kingdom? Whose kingdom are you building? Will you leave behind something that will be left in ruins? Or are you leaving behind something that will stretch into eternity? Herod was consumed with building his own kingdom. He was consumed with it. He was consumed with defending his throne from anyone or anything that might threaten it. Here's what I find so interesting about Herod, though. I think Herod knew that. I think Herod knew his kingdom couldn't last. I think Herod knew that he was building on, on a precarious foundation. Now, he may never have admitted that, even to himself, but I think deep down he knew it. And the reason I think that is because Herod lived in fear. Herod lived paranoid and suspicious. He lived, he lived consumed with defending his kingdom. He was the proverbial sailor who rearranged deck chairs while the Titanic sank. That's how Herod lived his whole life. But when we stop trying to build our kingdoms and give ourselves over to building a kingdom that will last, to building the kingdom of God, there's nothing to fear. There's no reason to be paranoid. There's, there's no reason to be suspicious because we're not building something that will be left in ruins. We're building something that will stand and stand forever. So I think Herod knew it. Our condition is not different than Herod's. We, we each reside over our own little kingdoms. We each sit on the throne of our, of our own hearts. But I think deep down we know that we're building something that can't last. I think deep down we know that, that we're building something on a precarious foundation that will one day be left in ruins. Think about it this way. Imagine that this, that this garland here uh, stretches beyond the length of the stage and stretches on into eternity, all right? Just imagine that for a moment. Um, this, this garland here represents your eternal existence, your entire eternity. This little red part here, can you even see the little red part? That's kind of on purpose. <laughs> this little red part here represents your time here on earth. This is it. So often we are consumed with this little red part. We're consumed with building this little kingdom. We, we scrape and claw at this little part so that we can better enjoy this little part. We're consumed with the red part. Herod was consumed with the red part. But the red part ended for, for Herod, and it will end for us. And then we'll have an eternity stretching out before us. 
See, Jesus isn't just the rightful king of the Jews. Jesus is the rightful king of the universe. The good news of Christmas is that the king has come. He has stepped down from his throne and entered his creation. Uh, He has ushered in his kingdom and invited us to come participate. He's basically said, look, it's not just about the red part. The red part matters, don't get me wrong, but this is not all that there is. There's an eternity stretching before you, so stop building your little kingdom. Build my kingdom. Build something that will last. This ends in ruins. This stretches in to eternity. That's the good news of Christmas. The king has come. So are you building your kingdom or are you building his kingdom? Imagine what it would be like if everyone who followed Jesus, everyone who claimed to be citizens of the kingdom of God actually started living in such a way that they were about building his kingdom. That's what they were about building. They were, they were building for him, not for themselves. Imagine what that would look like. Selfishness would, would be displaced by service. Greed would be displaced by, by generosity. Fear would be displaced by love. Because in a kingdom that lasts, in a kingdom that won't end in ruins, there's no, there's no room for fear or greed or, or selfishness or, fe- or insecurity. There's no room for any of those things. Not, not in the kingdom of God. There's plenty of room for it in our little red part of, of, of existence. But there's no room for it in a kingdom that lasts. So let's commit to making our lives about something more than ourselves. Let's commit to stepping down from our thrones and letting the rightful king take his place. Let's commit to building something that isn't going to end in ruins, but that's going to last and last and stretch into eternity. Let's commit to that this Christmas. The king has come, and he's our king, yours and mine. Let me pray for us. Lord God, thank you for coming. God, this is incredible news. You, d- you didn't just come to save up, to save us. You came uh, to take up your throne, your rightful throne over our lives. God, we know that, that life in your kingdom is, is better than anything that we could build ourselves. God, we know that, that, that our, our, our little kingdoms will be left in ruins, but yours will last forever. So God, this Christmas, we, we commit to you to building your kingdom, to laying down our kingdoms and to building yours. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.